Hello and welcome to episode 50 of Lime Ninja Radio. I'm your host, McKay Rippey, and in our remote Cooperstown studio is our producer, Aurora. Hey, hello. Hey, Aurora, why don't you tell everybody what you're doing down in Cooperstown or what you did today? Well, uh, I went to go see the Magic Flute at the Glimmerglass Opera House. And how was it? Uh, it was really fun. Um, it was a it was a youth production, and uh, really, Papa Gino and Papa Gina uh, stole the show. Uh, pa- Papagano. Was, oh, Papagano. Yeah. Oh, they pronounced it Papa Papa Gino. Papa Gino. Oh well, my Papagano, bad. Really. <laughs> I stand corrected. Anyway, it yeah, it was the it was an English translation of it. And, uh, no, it was just a lot of fun. And, you know, normally the opera is all very pomp and circumstances and every, and everybody dies at the end. But this was very much like, uh, Shakespeare, uh, Shakespeare comedy. You know, there was some slapstick and some silliness. And at the end of it, there was a wedding. So. <laughs> hey. Yeah. Everybody loves awesome. a wedding. Exactly. So this is episode uh, number 50. Our crazy. S- our silver anniversary. Yeah. I'm ex- so excited about it. Thanks yeah, to everybody out awesome. there listening to us. We've got over 50,000 downloads, and that's pretty cool. Woohoo! Yeah, exactly. All right, our guest this week is Dr. Matthew Edland, and he's an expert in sleep and the body circadian rhythms. And sleep is probably the most important factor in healing from Lyme disease. In fact, healing from anything. If you can't sleep, you can't heal. It's really that fundamental. And I know Lyme disrupts he- uh, healing excuse me, sleep in in so many different ways. And it's tough to get sleep in regular hours. So I thought it'd be really important to bring an expert on here and begin to explore this topic in more depth. So Aurora, will you tell us about Dr. Matthew Edland? Uh, Dr. Matthew Edland is an internationally recognized expert on rest, biological clocks, performance, and sleep. His previous books include The Body Clock Advantage, Designed to Last, and Psychological Time and Mental Illness. His new book, The Power of Rest, shows that rest is a skill that rebuilds, renews, and rewires mind and body and can increase productivity, health, and pleasure. He has worked as an Ivy League medical school professor, syndicated newspaper health columnist, hospital medical director, chief of a sleep lab, and vice president of an Asian arts museum. He trained in internal medicine at the University of California, San Diego, and Massachusetts General Hospital in occupational and public health at the Harvard School of Public Health in Sleep Medicine at Brown and in psychiatry at NYU Bellevue. Dr. Edlund is currently the director of the Center for Circadian Medicine. He's an impressive man. All right, Aurora, thanks so much. And here's our interview with Dr. Edland. Are you ready to jump in? Yeah, just tell me what in particular you're most interested in. You said before it was rest. Is there anything else? 
Well, this is a podcast for people suffering with chronic Lyme. And one of the things that I want to bring out, they feel bad because they're tired all the time because they're sick, right? The other thing that happens is their sleep cycle and their circadian rhythm gets bumped out. So if you have any insight into why infections kind of mess around with that, uh, that, that would be great. But I want to just encourage them, like your the the whole idea of the far, like the and the music of life, and the four types of rest. I think it's critical because they're, you know, they're so motivated to get better that they just push and push and push, and then they can't, and then yeah. they can't, right? Yeah, it's, it's total frustration. Yeah, yeah, a lot of frustrated and angry. Sure. You try things a thousand times and they don't work. You go to the docs, they tell you to do this, it doesn't work. Yeah. Exactly. All right, so let's let's begin. Tell me how you go from intern to public health to psychiatry to finally sleep medicine. <laughs> That's an it's interesting journey. You just follow the patients. Uh, I had always planned on doing public health, so I did internal medicine, and then I was doing an occupational medicine residency at Harvard, and uh, I really missed patient care. So I took a job as a clinical fellow in medicine at Mass General uh, so I could go back and do general medicine, and just huge numbers of people were coming in, uh, not unlike Lyme disease sufferers from today. This is 30 years ago, and they had all kinds of medical psychiatric problems, and they were being treated purely from the medical end. So somebody comes in with panic attacks, they get a workup for carcinoid tumor. And I said, this is absolutely crazy. Um, a lot of the psychiatric patients were sick as dogs, and nobody wanted to treat them. Hmm. Um, so I said, okay. So I went off and did a residency at Bellevue, and after I'd been an academic for a while, what happened in terms of sleep medicine, I was working, running this little division at Brown, and they used to send us out to the state hospital to look at the so-called hopeless cases. So I'm talking to these people, and they're all falling asleep in front of me. Right. I said, this is weird. And then the story was actually fairly classic. What would happen was they would be treated for depression or psychosis. They would get better. They would gain an enormous amount of weight, develop sleep apnea, and then end up permanent residents of the state hospital because they never got better. And most of the time, nobody was thinking, oh, my gosh, could these people really have some other problems. Sleep disorders were not that commonly understood at that point. So I said, gee, these folks have sleep apnea. I gave them CPAP machines, and they walk out of the hospital. Right. I said, this is good. You can get people who are told they're you know, terminally untreatable and get them to walk out of here. So that's how I ended up doing research in sleep and depression and sleep and anxiety and such. I'll tell you a little corroborating story. My mother's manic depressive, and whenever uh-huh. she would go into manic episode, one of the first clues was her sleep would get ridiculously disrupted. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You can actually, in, if people come to you and routinely say, I'm sleeping two hours one day and 18 hours the next, you have to start thinking that mood swings are part of the picture. Yeah. It's, it's it's funny, and even today, I find that uh, my patient, some of my patients, I'm an acupuncturist. Some of my patients mm-hmm. will come in undiagnosed, 
And I've, I've referred, I don't know, a handful, several handful over the, the past five to seven years back to their doc to get a, a sleep workup. And my question is, do you fall asleep watching television or reading a book? That's my proxy for, and, and it's amazing how many people say yes. Oh, yeah. Uh, a lot of people fall asleep driving, which is yeah. even scary. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, the population sleeps very poorly. Uh, and, human sleep is not the way we live now. Uh, and, it's totally different than what we, we used to do even 100 years ago. And we've knocked off about 90 minutes of sleep total in the last 40, 50 years. So right. something's got to give. And, unfortunately, the giving part can be everything from heart disease, strokes, even higher tumor rates to immunological deficits. And and so what's the what's the connection with sleep and the immune system? Uh, it's in, it's very intimate. I think the thing you have to see, if possible, is the body's a giant information system. Mm-hmm. I mean, we docs have silos. You know, there's infectious disease, there's internal medicine, there's psychiatry, there's general surgery. Uh, biological cells don't know that. It turns out that the biggest endocrine body in in the human body are the fat cells around abdominal organs. It's not until recently was the realization that a large part of endocrine responses, hormonal responses, are actually coming out of fat cells. And if you see the systems as continuously interlinked, which they are, and continuously updating the information for the body, and it must be updated because the environment is always changing. That's where immunity comes big time, because effectively the immune system has to be in hyperdrive and in forced evolutionary mode in order for us to survive. Why? Because everything else out there is changing. The bugs are always changing. It takes four hours for a hepatitis virus to mutate. (laughs) And when we walk outside, we're literally seeing a different immune environment every time. And if we didn't have an immune system that does what's called somatic hypermutation, which is literally forced evolution, which creates mutations of immunoglobulin production so that we end up with billions of potential immunoglobulins to deal with all the new stuff out there, we'd probably be toast as a species in a reasonably short time. So the environment always changes. We always change. We're constantly renewed, constantly regenerated, constantly rebuilt. Most of your heart, for example, is replaced in about three days. That doesn't include the cardiac valves. It doesn't include the skeletal proteins. They're like teeth. They last a long time. But everything else in there gets used up, and it never comes back the same way. And the immune system plays a critical part even in that because you always have to recycle things. You always have to rebuild things, and that involves inflammation. It's kind of like a building site. Mm-hmm. If, uh, if you get a, a wreck, uh, you know, like a car goes into a house, you got to move the car out. You got to clean up the debris. You got to make it clean enough so you can rebuild it. Then you rebuild it, and each time you rebuild it, it will not be exactly the same. The human body is that way. Biology works by constantly remaking itself, constantly updating, constantly regenerating. And immunity has such a large part to play in that that when immunity is off, it's a systemic problem. It can hit every organ everywhere. And that's what the Lyme people say, the chronic Lyme. Is there, well, chronic Lyme is, 
is very, it's very much a systemic illness, yes. and it's affecting everything they do. Yeah. It's going to affect their sleep. It's going to affect their cognition. It's going to affect their mood. It's going to affect their pleasure. It's going to affect um, their strength. It's going to affect when they go to sleep, when they don't go to sleep. It's going to affect how their heart moves. So you'll see for you, you'll see all kinds of things, but you see people not only complaining about either feeling sleepy all the time or not being able to sleep and constantly, constantly feeling tired, you know, getting so tired of being tired they can't even describe it, but all these other things, you know, there are problems with infection, there are problems with weakness, there's problems with cognition. It just goes everywhere. And that's very simply because the immune system affects everything there is. The immune system, in many ways, is as powerful as the nervous system. And it also is continuously remaking itself in such a way that because it's being remade, if there's any glitch, if there's anything that's sort of impacting on the system on a chronic basis, the renewal won't work properly. So here's a follow-up question to that, and there may not be an answer to it. So with all the new science with the gut biome, how... How does that fit into the circadian rhythm and sleep and rest and the immune system? Is is there an answer to that yet, or is that still just forming? There, there isn't an answer to that, because you're talking about giant systems, okay? I mean, the biome has enormous effects all over the place, of which most have not been known except for the last two years. Right. One of the studies that always amazes me is if you inject um, lactobacilli, if you inject basically yogurt bacteria, into genetically cloned identical mice, the ones that get the lactobacilli are much, much harder to stress. And they use these horrible experiments on mice where they, it's called learned helplessness, where they basically learn that no matter what happens, there's not going to be any help, and they get the equivalent in mice terms of being depressed. When they just gave these bacteria, it was much, much harder to get the mice to look depressed. They had much lower cortisol results. They had much lesser stress responses. They had a completely different response to the normal immune and mood things that would otherwise be, the play, be taking place. And this is just from injecting one bacterium right. into the GI tract. strain. So, yeah. Yeah, so there's huge impacts on this stuff. There's 100 trillion bugs down there. They've been with us basically from you know day one. If you look at human genes, there's going to be a lot of homology between human genes and viruses maybe half of the ones that we look at, and we only look at basically 2% because the control genes were considered junk DNA until recently. Right. Let me put it this way. If, if you look at physics, there's a realization now that 95, 96% of the universe is dark energy and dark matter, mm-hmm. which means that we've been spending all of our time looking at 4%. Okay? And I think the same thing is true in terms of the human body. We've been looking at these little percentages of what's going on What's unknown is much bigger. But just as in physics, if you look at it from an information standpoint and you say, what's the information flow? And you don't get hung up on what organ system it's in. Then a lot of these things, these interconnections between the gut and your mood, your gut and sleep, your gut and biological clocks, don't seem very strange anymore. The physicists now talk about quantum information theory. They They don't talk as much about quantum mechanics. All these things are interactive. All these things are talking to each other, most not on a conscious level. I'm willing to bet in the next 10, 20 years, you're going to find that your gut bacteria have quite a say in what kinds of foods you like to eat. Yeah. They have a pretty large impact psychoactively. 
how much is known about that? More or less squat at this point. <laughs> and that's the problem with a lot of these chronic diseases. I mean, you just don't know what they're really doing. So bringing it back to sleep and rest, that's why taking care of the basics are so critical. Because your body does have a system to handle this if the system's allowed to function. Right. Correct. I mean, what's sleep about? Why are we spending a third of our lives you know, unconscious? That's a, good, of- that's a great question, and I'll ask that. <laughs> Thank you for asking. My wife says, I'll sleep when I'm dead. I said, no, honey, you <laughs> you need to sleep now. Yeah, before you stop sleeping. And in fact, that's exactly what happens. In every animal that's been tested, if you sleep deprived them long enough, they all die. Yeah. It turns out that sleep is a particular part of human regeneration. We clean out all kinds of excess stuff in the brain. We regrow skin cells much more rapidly during sleep. We rebuild memory. We rebuild our our learning functions. We rebuild our muscles. And if we don't allow that process to happen, even if we partially sleep-deprive ourselves, which, frankly, most of us do a good part of the time, Mm -hmm. those regenerative systems don't work properly. I got back from the sleep meetings there. It was a wonderful lecture by a woman named uh, Carol Everson, who's at Medical College of Wisconsin, and she was basically partially sleep-depriving animals and showing horrific results. In other words, if an animal is used to getting 12 hours of sleep, she would give it 10 hours of sleep or 8 hours of sleep. And over long periods of time, you would just see these huge inflammatory changes. Muscle cells stopped regenerating. Fat cells would start necrosing. And this was from chronic sleep deprivation, not from total sleep deprivation, but just partial. Now, what do humans do? We partially sleep deprive ourselves all the time. All the time. And one of the horrors of chronic diseases is that people can't sleep normally. They don't get the same kind of sleep quality as be true when they weren't infected, which means that their whole regenerative function doesn't work right. And most people respond to that by spending more time in bed. They have to get more time in to rebuild that stuff. And unfortunately, it often doesn't work. Why? Uh, because, well, sleep is weird. If you put sleep out of the circadian phase, if you basically say to people, okay, you're all going to be shift workers, lots of bad things happen. I mean, shift work is going to be potentially considered a carcinogen by the World Health Organization. But shift workers get fatter, they get more diabetic, they get more hypertensive, they get... Um, more heart attacks, they get more strokes, they get more tumors. I mean, it it's just a huge mess. And a lot of people, when they develop these illnesses, they don't have the proper circadian phase, and they sleep in the wrong part of the day. We're really meant to sleep at night or to take naps in the early mid-afternoon. Mm-hmm. The other thing is they just don't get regular normal sleep. There's less deep sleep, there's less REM sleep, there's far more awakenings. So people never feel fully rested. They never feel like they're fully rebuilt and renewed. And that becomes a big, big problem. And usually in terms of treating that, you have to really go back to basics and say, okay, I know your system is not operating properly, but here are some guidelines. And the guidelines are usually the same kinds of things that you'll hear for insomnia, for example. And it's you go to bed at the same time, you get up at the same time. You, If you can't sleep, you get out of the bed. You read a book you should have read in high school but didn't. When you're ready to go back to sleep, you go in. You take, you can take short naps. You do what I call FAR or food activity rest. You eat, you move, you rest, you eat, you move, you rest. There's a time for being physically active. There's a time for being physically indolent. Interestingly, 
physical activity, when people can do it, usually increases mental sharpness. That's not always going to be true in chronic diseases, but for most people, when they're feeling tired, it's not just the physical fatigue. In some people, it's a mental fatigue. Right. And if they're capable of it, getting physical activity will often make it better. But the issue is what dose of physical activity, and for people with chronic Lyme, it's not going to be that high. Right. Now, and then, so what's different? You make a distinction between sleep and then rest, and you've got four types of rest, the mental, social, spiritual, and physical. Right. Do you need all four, or can you just get one of them? um, You're better off if if you put everything together. What I talk about is the fourfold path to health, and what I basically argue is docs tend to look at physical health only, and we look at even more narrow definitions of it. I mean, I'll, I'll go to my internist, and basically if my cholesterol is low and my heart rate is low He's and happy. my blood pressure is low, yeah. you know, I'm fine. So the definition of medicine in this country is absence of disease, which is complete nonsense. That's not health. Health is physical, mental, social, spiritual well-being. And the trick is to use all four components of whatever diagnosis you've got. So you say to yourself, okay, if I've got a cold... What can I do about it physically? What can I do about it mentally? What can I do about it socially? What can I do about it spiritually? Spiritually, not meaning religious per se, but in terms of meaning and purpose. What can I add in those factors that will make me feel better? Now, mind you, until the 20th century, medical care really didn't have a whole lot more than social and spiritual support. Yes. You could give people opiates. You could put them to bed. You could tell them when their tumor was going to kill them. I mean, it was, it was pretty limited. But you could get social support, and you could get spiritual support. And those turn out to be absolutely critical in chronic illness. Because in many cases, as a lot of people have found out, the medical care system doesn't have a lot to offer. And when it doesn't, you've got to do a lot of things on your own. The mental is really relentlessly looking at the world in terms of solutions, not just problems. What can I do to get this better? What can I do to fix this? And then something which is much harder emotionally, how can I accept things when I know I can't change them? But I I would simply argue that any diagnosis you look at, physical, mental, social, spiritual health, well-being, apply those rules to each. So, for example, in terms of people with chronic illness, you want them to be able to be active, but you also want them to be able to rest because that's where their body's going to rebuild. You want them to have regular times of going to bed, regular times of getting up. You want them to eat some kind of diet that makes sense. And then, of course, you get into a huge fight as to what that diet or diets should be. (laughs) We'll save that for another day. (laughs) No, but I mean, what it really comes down to in the nutritional epidemiology literature is eat a lot of whole foods and a lot of varied whole foods. Yes. Longest lived populations do that. And they're not the same thing. Humans can eat 10,000 different foodstuffs. Yep. Um, so there's a lot of things that people can do and in many cases have to do on their own because the healthcare system simply isn't set up to take care of it. It's funny because in interviewing people who have hit that spiritual, I'm going to say spiritual point again, I agree with you that it's not necessarily, it can be religious, but not necessarily religious, where they stop waiting 
for the medical system or some help to arrive from somewhere else and just feel comfortable inside with, okay, this is my challenge. This is my path. This is my struggle. And then that seems to get the ball rolling and they start searching around. They, they're me- they mentally wake up. They become problem solvers rather than right. complainers. So I, I think that's kind of what you're talking about now. But does this, so you're saying you need to rest these functions. So you can, in Chinese medicine, you can, you, they thought of willpower as a substance that you could go through and just burn out and you would need time to regenerate it. So can, okay. I mean, at rest, it sounds to me like you're talking about that these functions also need a recovery time and some tending to, that they don't happen on their own necessarily. Is that correct or am I making that up? Sleep is a large part of that recovery time. Uh, uh, You know, that the one-third of life that's spent supposedly unconscious is a very, very active, necessary part of life, just like food and air are necessary to life. But... What we can do in terms of our own behavior is see what we can do physically. And basically that's, in theory, not complicated, putting it in practices. And that's, yes, you eat a variety of different foodstuffs. You be as physically active as is possible within your own body, and you have relatively regular hours of when you go to bed, when you get up, when you eat. The mental part for a lot of people is critical, and that's really trying to see what can I do to fix things? What are the potential solutions? What's plan A, plan B, plan C, plan D? Very often we get caught up in the disasters of our lives, large or small, and have a really hard time adjusting ourselves to, okay, what can I do to fix this? Um, because things like pain, things like fatigue are absolutely overwhelming. You know, People come to me and say, how can I do any of this stuff? I'm in so much pain. Right. And I Look, do what's possible. And if you can't do it, see if others can help you with it. And if you can't do it physically, do what you can mentally. And if that's cut off, then you have to look to social and spiritual support to keep you going. Because Einstein talked about the optical delusion of individuality. (laughs) There's 7.2 billion of us on the planet. We survive on the support of others. We are not entities purely unto ourselves. And we need that help all the time, even if we don't think we do. Well said. And here's kind of a, a unrelated uh, question. Do those gadgets that connect to your iPhone and so forth, are they useful or not? Are they accurate enough to help people, or do they need to go to somebody like you? Uh, then I, yeah, the last thing you want them to do is go to somebody like me because <laughs> completely unhappy view of the medical care system. Uh, no, um, I think the gadgets can be useful to a degree. Uh, some of them are accurate, some of them are not. Uh, the sleep accuracy, I think, in a lot of them is relatively poor. Um, but they do have their uses in the sense that you can track changes over time. Even if the stuff is inaccurate, you can at least see what the similar inaccuracies are. I think people are better off with subjective measures, though. Um, Such as? Well, how well they feel. I mean, you know, people would come to me and say, I'm sleeping eight hours a night, but I feel awful. And I'm going like, okay. And in the old days, we used to put people in sleep labs and find out that, indeed, they were sleeping eight hours a night. And they still didn't feel right. So... 
the really big issue is how you feel. There are people out there who will tell you they sleep wonderfully. You'll put them in a sleep lab, they sleep two hours a night, they walk up, wake up and say, oh, that was great. Um, you have to deal with what you're feeling yourself. Hmm. And if you get caught up with the gadgets, um, and I've, I've seen this happen more than once, people get so focused on the numbers, they forget about their own subjective reality. <laughs> it's really what counts. Yeah, that's great. Sometimes I'll ask somebody how's their feeling in, in, in the intake, and they'll say something, well, the doctor says my cholesterol is, and they'll give me a number. And I'll say, well, and how are you feeling? And they say, well, my blood pressure is. And then you finally get through to them, and it, it takes a minute for them to kind of check in and find out how they're feeling. Oh, yeah, and, and the physicians are perfectly happy with that. And yeah. So, like, people will ask me, I'll say, oh, yeah, you know, my, my last cholesterol was 125, and they say, Oh, that's wonderful. And I'm saying, it doesn't tell you much of anything. Right. Uh, you know, it, it, because it, what it tells you is that's a risk factor for cardiovascular disease. And it might, might represent 20% of overall statistical risk. So it, it, you, you have to get away sometimes from looking at the numbers because the things that really count, we often don't count. How do you count love? How do you count social support? How do you count a sense of feeling in love or a sense of feeling content. I mean, you can, you can ask all kinds of questions with visual analog scales, but it's a very different ballgame than what the healthcare system is set up for. And the healthcare system is basically turning a lot of physicians into checklist idiots. Oh, it's so uh, awful, isn't it? Well, we, we, spent, you know, we, live, we work for insurance companies, basically. And yeah, yeah. insurance companies have found out that, yeah, we can count all kinds of stuff and and sometimes it's useful. I mean, you want, obviously, to control people's blood pressure. You want them not to get diabetic. But they get so focused on a few numbers that they forget about mental, social, spiritual health altogether. And they very often forget about things that are critically important. So when people tell me they're in terrible pain or they tell me that they're continuously fatigued, you don't have numbers like that showing up on the physician checklist. So... That's, a not, that's somebody else's problem. So the physician will sit there and say, oh, well, you know, your numbers are all great. Yeah, I know you feel awful and you can't get off the bed and you can't have any life, but, you know, you're really in good shape. It's that weird disconnect. It's like a bad New Yorker cartoon <laughs> where they're telling you you're well based on the numbers, but you feel absolutely awful. Yeah, and the patient and, knows they're not well. Yeah. Right. Right, and, and, and the physicians in many cases, once they've done the numbers, once they've done the checklist, you know, I'm done. And now I'm going to get paid. And if I, if I actually spend 45 minutes talking to somebody about how miserable their life is, right. that's not going to get me paid. Right. And so, in certain cases, we'll actually get you fired. Yeah, well, that's the scary thing, right? these days for, for the docs. I, I have great sympathy for the docs at this point. I'm real, I really feel sorry for them. How did you, and I didn't think we'd go down this path. How did you get out of that box? Because it's not easy. Well, I think a lot of people are out of that box. Um, really? Not the, not, yeah, I, I do. I, not I, up I, here I in central New York. Uh, okay, central New York. Well, I went to the Harvard School of Public Health. Oh, okay. Yes. And, and so that ruined me for the, the standard medical care point of view. <laughs> uh, because the idea was health. Yes. And the idea was not just individual health, but population health. Yes. And physicians are normally treated and judged on the basis of one-by-one one 
how did you deal with this person or that person? They don't look at large communities. They don't look at large populations. They're not trained that way most of the time. And that's where a lot of these problems arise because uh, if you're looking at health, for example, then you're going to be talking to people about mass transit because mass transit literally causes people to walk more. And you're going to be talking to people about green spaces because when people have a lot of green space around, there are recent studies showing that the kids actually will have higher IQs and think better. Uh, but you'll also show a lot less cardiovascular disease. These are the things that really matter when you start talking about health. But instead, we're just focused on disease, and that's the problem. You've got to get people to think about health, not health care. You've got to get people to think that a healthy economy requires a healthy population. You've got to get people to think that a healthy population requires a healthy environment. This is not what the medical care system cares about. No. So I recently interviewed Dr. Horowitz, and I don't know if you've come across his name. He's been treating Lyme patients forever and is really quite well-known and has several uh, popular books about Lyme. Yeah. And his mm-hmm. he has a very similar take on the whole system. So I asked him this question. I said, so when are you going to get an endowed chair in a, in a medical school and start teaching this? So I kind of have the same question for you. When is this ever going to make it into med schools? It will if it comes out of the population itself. That's, uh, he had words, the same answer. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm afraid that's the way it is because you know every, every tradition, every institution has its own institutional ideology, mm-hmm. and medical ideology in general is tends to be very conservative. Uh, you, you, you're scared about all the bad things you could do. I mean, you know, the old joke in medical school. Half of what we do is right, half is wrong. We just don't know which half. <laughs> um, so, so the end result is now there's this big focus on evidence-based. Mm-hmm. And the, the peril of evidence-based is if you don't have things that you're counting, they don't count. So right. you forget about really critical health issues. But within that realm, it's very hard to change people's attitudes. It just takes a long time. And I think the main game is going to be just to convince people to think of health as opposed to health care. Uh, lots and lots of people tell me they think that, you know, healthcare is their health. And I say, no, uh, and sometimes I don't think they're even related at all. And unfortunately, in many cases, they're related negatively. I mean, yes. I, I've written a bunch of articles about this for Psychology Today and my own websites and such, where I basically say, look at health folks. Don't equate healthcare with health, because right. the two, in many cases, are not even related. Yeah, healthcare is more like collision repair after you've been in an accident. That actually is a good use of it. Um, it's it's to use it's of use when you get sick. When you're sick, you got to go see people like me. Yeah. The trick is to not get sick. <laughs> the problem with that is people get sick because of bad luck. I mean, there's this this tendency now uh, on the part of like insurance companies and others. Oh well, you know, you smoked, you drank. No wonder why you have, you know, heart disease. No wonder why you have lung cancer. Sorry, guys, a lot of it is chance. You could be a twenty-year-old and drop dead of a tumor, being a marathon-running vegan. You could be a hundred years old and be smoking three packs a day, like U.B. Blake was. Right. Um, a lot of this is just darn luck. That's why national health systems look at it and say, okay. We have to do this for the whole population because some people are going to be unlucky, and the lucky will pay for the care of the unlucky. But we don't do that here. We don't see it in those terms. We don't see it as pooling the risks because the risks are out there. 
So what is it? You did something really terrible. You went hiking with your friends. Um, you had a marvelous time, and then you end up with chronic Lyme disease. Obviously, that's your fault because you were doing this healthy thing of going out with your friends and hiking in the woods. <laughs> Heaven forbid. Yeah. Well, so it, it really has to be the idea that we're in this together, that this is a community population problem, mm-hmm. which makes it automatically a public political problem. Yes. And that we view it from the standpoint of what are we doing for our, our, our fellow beings because of their but for grace go on. Yes, very much so. And I'll wrap up my final comment. Uh, it's amazing how a chronic illness will damage a person's intimate relations, whether it's a spouse or within a family. And many of them are left on their own. And that's part of the pain that they're going through. And part of the illness that they're going through is their structure of support who helped them through most of their life is now turned on them. And yeah. uh, it's 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 just it's absolutely brutal. It's brutal. It is, it is brutal. But loneliness kills people. Yes. Yeah. And that's that's a known fact. Dr. Ellen, you've been very generous with your time. I really appreciate it, and I want to give you the opportunity to let give give you the opportunity to tell people about your books, your website, your Facebook, how to get in touch with you whatever it is that you want to put out there so uh, you can help people and uh, they can seek you out. Okay. Well, my last name is E-D-L-U-N-D. My main website is regenerationhealthnews.com. I'm known in the field as the rest doctor. Um, I practice in Sarasota, Florida. My most recent books are Healthy Without Health Insurance, um, uh, the Power of Rest, uh, well, those, those two will probably be the most useful for this population. Uh, but if you need to get me, you just Google Matthew Edlund. You'll find uh, uh, several hundred articles all over the place in terms of applied public health for individuals. I uh, very much am not a Lyme disease expert. I see loads and loads of people with a variety of chronic illnesses, but if anybody comes to me and says, you know, can you help me out with Lyme and the different issues immunologically and serologically and so forth, I'm afraid I won't be much use to them. What I can help people do is cope with the lies they've got. And if they can just view it from the standpoint of what can I do physically, mentally, socially, spiritually to get myself better, usually you're going to be in somewhat better shape. Terrific. Thank you so much for your time. Great talking to you. Have a great day. Okay. Okay. Bye-bye. It was actually very uh, enlightening talking to him because he touched on quite a few things that make me fume a little bit about uh, the modern healthcare practice. Fume? But one thing, fume, yes. When I'm I'm by myself and, and have only my thoughts to entertain me I think about some some of these things and like uh, what you just make me oh like in today he talked about uh, evidence-based medicine and uh, what he said was was really spot-on which was if you don't have things that you're counting they don't count 
And it's absolutely true because you go online and you go onto some of these forums and you see people just absolutely dissing anything that that cannot be quantified uh, with evidence-based medicine. And as the daughter of an acupuncturist, you know, that makes me a little bit mad because I know from personal experience that you can, uh, you know, things that can't be quantified actually can help people. And that, you know, even if the science-based medicine is, you know, careful and methodical, that that it sometimes just can't catch everything that's making a person sick which is, as Dr. Edmund is saying, it's the spiritual part, it's the emotional part, it's the social support, all that sort of thing. And the truth of it is, you know, human beings aren't perfect, and the healthcare system is based on the triumph of humanity over everything else, you know? So what what do you mean by that? Boy, here's my soapbox. Um... So what do you mean the triumph over humanity over everything else? Um, everything from the 17th century on, in my opinion, is about hum- humans learning about nature so they can control it. Oh, okay. And, yeah, that's it. And at, at some point especially with evidence-based medicine and scientific medicine, um, there comes a point where they think, we think, I should say, that there is nothing else to learn. And that reductive kind of thinking is um, can be incredibly harmful because as Dr. Edwin was mentioning in, in this interview, you know, right now we equate health with health care and therefore health equals not being sick when that's really that's if you think about that it's completely illogical it's a pretty low bar yeah, yeah. not being sick is just the absence of disease not necessarily health exactly right. and I think what you're saying also is that science can kill curiosity because once an answer is assumed to be derived then all investigation stops or all science just repaves the same path over and over and over again. So there are thousands yeah. of articles on cholesterol and statins lowering cholesterol, but there's very few actually on statins helping heart disease. And yeah. so we've so- got this horrible case of statins being thrown at everybody and threatened to be put in drinking water, all kinds of crazy things, and there's very little benefit. Heart disease has not gone down since we started giving people statins. In fact, it's gone up. The only thing that's gone down is death by heart attacks, and that's because our emergency medicine is so much better, and you've got those portable defib paddles at every doorway now all over the U.S. Right, yeah. And it's just, it's the dark side of, you know, scientific inquiry. It's like, Scientific inquiry can make amazing leaps and bounds, but it's only once they have uh, a goal in mind or a goal in sight, I suppose. So, interesting. What are you going to well, do? I didn't think we'd be going down this rabbit hole together. 
You know, and that's one of I posted on Facebook today, and I'm a little bit concerned. You know, we keep throwing antibiotics at Borrelia, and there was just a case in UCLA over the past few months where there was a superbug. A patient came in infected with uh, completely resistant. A bacterium and it started infecting other people in the hospital and they couldn't kill it and they couldn't stop it for a long time. Yeah. And if we take something like yeah. Lyme disease, like Borrelia, and keep on throwing antibiotics at it, maybe it'll li- learn to be stronger and not get killed by any of them. So there's, yeah. you know, on one hand, we need to save people and people need their antibiotics so they don't die. But on the other hand, what are we doing with the antibiotics? So I think we need to be aware of both ends of the spectrum there. I think you're right. Yeah. So if you need yeah. more crazy discussions like this in your life, if you need more Lyme Ninja in your life, Aurora, what should you do? You should go to our, our website, LimeNinjaRadio.com. There you can find all 49 past episodes. And the current number 50. Woohoo! We archive all these the episodes number- so you can go back and listen to them again and again. The best way to learn, the ninja way to learn, is by repetition. You'll hear something new every time you listen and deepen your understanding each time. All right. On the website, you can also sign up for our Ninja Insider mailing list and pick up the Line Ninja Brain Fog Protocol as our thank you. Yes, but that's not all. Lime Ninja Radio is also on <laughs> iTunes, Twitter, Twitter, and Facebook. Woo-hoo. Lastly, this podcast would not be complete unless we left you with the Lime Ninja Fact of the Day. Did you know when a ninja puts his phone on airplane mode, it can fly? Lime Ninja Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique and Lime Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.